Welcome back to Becoming Your Best Version. I am your host, Maria Leonard Olson. You can learn more about me at marialeonardolson.com. I'm a civil litigation attorney in the Washington, D.C. area, a TEDx speaker and a other public speaker, a mentor to women in recovery, and a radio show host. I am broadcasting from Washington, D.C., and I use this podcast to amplify the voices of inspiring women whose paths have crossed mine. And in my work, I am lucky enough to meet many inspiring women. I'm also an author. My last book is 50 After 50, Reframing the Next Chapter of Your Life. And as one of my side gigs, I occasionally help female authors with book publicity. I was lucky enough to be introduced to an extraordinary woman, Vales Shepherd. She is a captivating author, and I've helped her a wee bit with some book publicity items, but she doesn't really need my help because this woman is a powerhouse. She knows so many incredible people in the Washington, D.C. area. She even did a book talk at the Library of Congress already. This woman is extraordinary. There are few historical novels about the successful Black experience before, during, and after slavery. Because of a lack of documentation about the African-American experience and culture during the early part of U.S. history, Bales's book called A Good Ending for Bad Memories, while fiction is a true account of the Black reality and culture in the United States. It is full of compelling characters and rich settings and adds to an important narrative. Thales is one of the founding members, editors of the Washington Independent Review of Books, which began when the Washington Post ceased publishing Bookworld. She interviewed authors and wrote regular articles about writing for the Washington Independent Review. She designed a writing program for high school students while teaching in a Saturday program under the auspices of Substance Abuse Prevention Education. Vales was editor of The African Safari by P.J. Fetner and Take Me With You by Scott Jackson, who is president and CEO of Global Impact. Her short story called Monroe was published in an anthology of women writing about men called Brothers and Others. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and, sometimes, two sons. A Good Ending for Bad Memories is the first of four upcoming books, and we can't wait for these books to hit the bookshelves. A Good Ending for Bad Memories is a richly sensual novel about a prosperous American family before, during, and after slavery. It threads truth, folklore, legend and fact in a captivating exploration of a family's complex legacy. The plot frames their experiences and events in the United States, as well as in Mexico and Egypt. You can learn more about her by looking at the show notes that are in this podcast. 
as well as valeshepherdbooks.com. But you need not write it down because it's all in the show notes. Welcome, Vales. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. I, I, I'm sitting there listening, thinking, who's she talking about? <laughs> not, not the end of it, but the beginning, because the extraordinary part should go to you. And uh, I want everyone to know has helped me way more than a little. I don't know why she said so little. And uh, <laughs> so she's done a lot. And I think that's incredible. And the fact that she has time to do all these things. So I'm, I'm very pleased to be a part of Maria's orbit. So I think oh, it should go that way. Thank you so much. You're very kind. <laughs> but let's get down to this book, which I really love. And the cover art is beautiful. Well, let's start there. You have cover art that is really eye-catching. Tell us about that. I am lucky enough to have a friend who's a painter and lives in this area. And his name is Preston Sampson. And Preston and I have known each other, I guess, almost, you know, more than 20 years. And I was, again, lucky enough to be in a mall one day. And I might add, I'm almost never in a mall. But Preston had a small kiosk. I, you know, must have been 20 years ago where his work was available. And at that time, I talked my husband into buying a drawing. And I've sort of followed him ever since. And so when I was, you know, when the book was coming about, and they were sending me images, and I guess they were more like computer generated or something. I didn't like them at all. And I thought, Preston, and I remember seeing something, catching a glimpse of a woman that I thought would be perfect. So I asked him, and he began to send me all kinds of images, beautiful women, so many, it was shocking, but not the right one. And I was like, no, that's not her. That's not her. Finally went to his studio and found her behind some other things. And there she is. And he added the shovel for me. <laughs> oh, I love it. This uh, this cover is so colorful and has some abstract elements. And I was lucky enough to meet the artist at one of your book talks and looked at some of his portfolio. Yeah, he is so talented. And thank you for bringing him to my attention because I would love to have him do a portrait of my daughter, I believe is what- Wow, that would be great. To. Yeah, That'd be great. Yeah. So what prompted you to write a good ending for Bad Memories? I mean, it is a really rich novel and you are obviously a very good writer, but why did this story come first for you? Well, I think um, it's not the first um, story I've written. I think it was the best debut for me in a sense because of all of the elements and, and the way it came together in a sense. So many years ago, there was an article in the... Um, I think it was the post of the times and it was a, a woman who suffered from multiple personality disorder and wrote about her experience. And for me, it was one of the most fascinating things I'd ever read. And that little tiny curl stayed with me. And, you know, it was just there. And then I grew up near some cousins who lived next to two spinster sisters and you, you'd get a, a view of them. You know, they'd come out on their porch, they'd do this, and you'd look at them and you'd hear these stories about them. But I never knew much. I knew that they had lived overseas for a while. And I believe that, um, that they never readjusted to when they moved back home. And I don't know how long they lived there or anything, but I just, the glimpse of them stayed with me. And I think the other part, maybe the third piece, and I don't know if you want to... Um, add it this way, but I'm going to at this point, is wanting to tell a different story about the African-American culture mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. wanting to um, 
tell you things that, you know, I knew because I knew about all sorts of families, just as anyone does, you know, the people you meet, the things, the tidbits you hear. And as a storyteller, those are the things that stay with you. Um, well, you are a, a beautiful storyteller and the imagery that you can evoke through your writing, which is very sensory. And I think that's the hallmark of good writing is when you involve all of the senses and your imagination is so rich and the dialogue that you use. Tell us about the dialogue because the dialogue feels very authentic to the times that you cover in the book, the people you are covering in the book. And it's not, it's some of the dialogue is not, uh, Reg, not regular, not common American modern vernacular. It is, it is very intentionally, I believe, part of the place and time in which you are writing for this book. So well, tell me about the development of the dialogue and how you made it feel so authentic. You know, I think that what happens is it's the character first. I knew these women inside and out and, and for um, people who don't know, it is the story of a woman who has um, four separate personalities. Five really, but I don't want to be a spoiler. So just <laughs> four. And, and what happens as you develop them, you begin to hear their voices. And so I know that one would say this and, and each of them have a different relationship with the people around them. So first with her mother, and then, you know, she's, she's raised and steeped on the stories of her great grandmother, who was a slave. And, and I had to learn about all of them. I mean, the book, you know, I do research, not because I want factual detail. I need to know where the spaces are where I can put my imagination. And, and that's what helps create voices and character and everything. You need to know the place where you're writing so that you can imagine. And to be honest with you, I, I don't know. I think I was born with a rich imagination yeah indeed uh, you know, and i, I like, know oh my god i i you, you, you started know. early really early yeah, yeah. in your writing I, I started with my oldest brother who was a spoken word poet and he and i stole my grandmother's typewriter <laughs> right <in the> back <laughs> and started typing up and i still remember the plunk 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 you know those old typewriters um yeah. and we wrote a play together and in fact the play was i called something like master and the slaves and um they performed it in sixth grade. It was kind of oh, fun. Oh, I love much it. longer, yeah, than the piece that they performed. But both my brother and I were like that. And the funniest thing is that he he wrote poetry. Mm. He, um, and that poetry was rich and imaginative. And for me, I'm, I, I certainly would write poetry that I'd never share with anyone. But a story for me is, is my place. Well, some of your writing in this book, I think, is very poetic. So don't sell yourself short there, my friend. <laughs> it is beautiful, beautiful. Now in the book, the book summary on your website says that Lloyd Earl, one of the characters in the book, built the first Negro kitchen library in the US. His family and others like it were found on a list called, quote, the curiously successful Negro a list kept in secret for more than 100 years by Harvard University, end quote. So is there such an analogous list that exists? No, everyone asks me that, and I always wish that it, that, that it did exist, but it's actually a compilation of things that, that I knew about certain families. 
for instance, you know, our, our history is not, not uh, compiled and given to us the way um, the rest of American history is, but we all knew stories of, you know, like there was, a, there was an African-American um, sail builder who became enormously wealthy back in the 1800s. You know, there was a, you know, a story about someone else. Um, <clears throat> there was, um, you know, you, you've heard about Black Wall Street and everybody knew about what happened in Oklahoma. Yes. And the, the, the thing is, there's just not the list. There's just a tidbit here and there. And for me, I felt like it was important to know that, that, that the list did exist. And especially for in, in the telling of this story. So not really, but I'd like to think it did. Well, maybe it did in oral histories. Maybe yeah, absolutely. It, it indeed is there. And yeah. maybe somebody should write it now. <laughs> maybe someone should. I mean, you know what? I, there was a time when I had this project that I discussed with two other women about actually going and recording some of the stories that we knew that were told by much older people. Mm. And, you know, because, I mean, in my own family, they were very successful people in a little town in South Carolina, and they owned the store, the land, the houses of this and that. And then they began to kill the, some of the, you know, one was murdered and assassinated in the train station. Then another one was killed here. And all because they were successful. And I think uh. there are lots of African-American families. You know, I can count at least several that I've heard the same story that are not related to me. And I knew what happened in my family. And I thought, you know, um, wouldn't it be lovely if there were a list of these people and what they did and what they owned and how hard they worked? And like in my grandfather's day, and I do remember this, you would never, like my grandfather would never um, drive a car that he could actually afford. Mm. You know, they, they, had, they had that latent sort of, you know, fear that you better not look too successful. Mm, I, can, I can understand that, definitely. I mean, I am a brown person, but the history of racism against African-Americans in our country has al always, in my experience, been harsher than towards Asians or Latinos for whatever reason. It just has been my experience. And it was illegal for my parents to get married in Maryland, which is such a liberal state that no one can believe it when I say, yeah, they had to go to DC because I'm biracial. Uh, but that was the case. And yeah. yeah, and it was a case like I had a great, great aunt who, where did she go? She went to Barnard mm. and she passed. And she mm. came from her little town in South Carolina. She went up there and then she went back to South Carolina and taught her nieces and nephews and things like that. And I think, you know, a lot of times what happened is the, the person never came back because it just wasn't, you know, you get used to living a certain way and not having the harshness around you. Mm -hmm. um, so it's understandable, you know, and I just don't think, I think sometimes we're too harsh on the people of the past or people that made different decisions than us and, and it's unnecessary, particularly historically. Well, you're a very mature woman in my experience of you. <laughs> I, I'm successfully dropping some rocks and not others, but I'm working on it. So I also am fascinated that you chose Cairo, Egypt, as the setting for part of the story. Why were you drawn towards Egypt? I love Cairo. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'd like to go back to Cairo again. And I've you know, I, I felt like I spent a lot of time in Cairo, but I didn't. I've spent more time in Jordan and, and um, Beirut. But, mm. I, you know, my husband and I went to Cairo so many years ago, and I can still smell it. Mm. I still remember how the people would come to us 
and say, welcome in Egypt, welcome in Egypt. I remember that there were 60, supposedly 16 million people and no crime, you know, wow. and, and there was a lot of poverty and a lot of, you know, but the, their attitude towards living to me was just amazing. And so, you know, I, I wanted to have it in my story. I also needed to place them in a place where the mother's inability to be totally functional would not be obvious and would not be a concern to anyone. And so that, that was the other thing. She didn't have the language. She didn't have the, um, the need to have a job or anything like that. And she lived in a, in a mansion that was well taken care of. So it gave her the freedom to try and um, look at her past, to go back to just the way she lived anyway. And so I think um, it had to be a place like that. That's so interesting. I, Egypt is on my bucket list and your book made me want to go there even more. So <laughs> I will, I will, I will get there. I'm confident that I will get there. So also you, as you mentioned, wrote about multiple personality disorder. Did you have to consult with psychiatrists or psychologists to get that? I, I spoke with some, yes, I never met a patient, but I did speak with, um, the people that treated patients. And mm. I read a lot about it and I'm telling you, it, it's really extraordinary. And the funny thing is, you know, now some psychiatrists would like to say that doesn't really exist. And, and that it's, you know, that uh, maybe I think they're thinking that the people have made it up or something, but that's some, and now they call it disassociative disorder. But wow. for me, it makes perfect sense. You know, things are so traumatic that you, you have a partner or someone else to help you deal with that trauma. That makes perfect sense to me to have a, you know, someone that you could rely on. Um, I think that in, if, if, you, if it were really, for instance, if you were really conscious of this other person and things like that, you would probably befriend them. But, but in most cases, they are not friends. They are, they are separate people occupying the same space that you do, so to speak. And the other thing that was pretty important to me about this story and I feel like um, this should be spoken more about in our society is that slavery was a trauma. And mm. I think it was a trauma for those enslaved and for the perpetrators, because there's no way in the world that you can sort of treat people the way slaves were treated and still claim your humanity. And I think that unfortunately in our society that we are still having the fallout. And I think that um, that was the other thing that I wanted to write about. I wanted to talk about how, you know, this is this kind of legacy extends all the way to now and the cruelty that was experienced and practiced. And I think it's still sort of there, there are legions of it in our in our current situation or dynamic, I'll say. Absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I honor and thank you for continuing to write about hard issues. I suggest everyone take a look at Bales's blog. Uh, for instance, I really loved your blog entry about see, seeing flags, oh. seeing the American flag hanging from a private household and wondering which kind of patriotism that flag represents, which America? Yes, as I think about it too. And when I got divorced and was moving uh, east, I saw confederate flags and i knew i'm not living in this neighborhood <laughs> right. crossed off the list <laughs> because uh, america is fractured and it was made even more more apparent with our last administration not to go 
political in this. But anyway, go and look at Bells's blog. It's really beautiful writing, beautiful topics. She is a gifted, a gifted writer. There's no, there's no two ways about that. So tell me also briefly about uh, the Washington Independent Review, because that is also a great service to the Washington community and further. And I, I think you're still involved with it. And I would like to hear more about its founding. Uh, I know why it was founded, but how did you and some other people who love books come together and create such a great forum and platform for Washington writers? You know, for me, it had a really funny beginning in the sense that, so I, and years ago, of course, I went to a class at the, um, at the Writer's Center in Bethesda. And I, for those of you, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows where that, or what that is. It's a very good resource for writers in this area. So I was a part of a class there and there was, and you know, usually it's, it's 10 or 12 people and you share your writing and then, you know, you talk about it. And um, if, if you're lucky, you may make a connection to someone else in your class. And that's what happened to me. And so one of the gentlemen that was in the class with me invited me to join his writers group. So I was like, you know what, that might be something I should do and did. And so I joined this writing group and um, it was a fascinating experience. I can't tell you how, how most amazing it was, but at any rate, um, David Stewart, who has a new book coming out, I mm. guess in April, one that mm -hmm. came out, um, asked me one day, he was like, oh, we're starting this you know, thing. Would I join? Would I be a part of it? And I, and so, and Dave and I knew each other from looking at each other's work and editing and suggesting for all the years that we were a part of the same writing group. So I was like, sure, I'll join something like that. And so we started having these meetings downtown and then the meetings became more regular and everyone was talking about how to do this and what we wanted to do. Everyone was a volunteer. Everyone was extraordinarily enthusiastic because everyone loves writing and loves books. And we were like, how dare the Post not do this? How could a major city like this um, cease to publish book world no matter what. And so that's what we did. We stepped into that space. Um, it was always online from the very beginning. And then one day he called me up and said, what I consider a position like being the, the senior features editor. And I was like, well, what did that mean? <laughs> but anyway, of course I said yes. And that's how it began. And, and so David and I did a lot of things together, going to libraries and here and there and trying to get people to get involved. And, you know, it was really wonderful. I don't remember anyone really saying no. And mm. since then it's grown. And I used, I used to be, you know, I was always, it, for a while it was like your dream come true. Pick a writer and interview them. And I interviewed Kazuo Ishiguro. I interviewed, before he won the Nobel Prize. Wow. I interviewed, yeah, I can't tell you how many people. I, I, would, I need a long list. That one stands out in my mind because uh -huh. generally we, a lot of the times I did the interview by email, like I read the book, come up with a question, send it to them and they'd write back. But uh, Kazuo Ishiguro was here. He was here for a meeting, I mean, for a book thing. And it was after them, I can, you know, it's funny. I can picture the green book on the cover. And so we actually did it by phone. And so I had a lot of interviews like that and a lot of, you know, amazing writers and, it was a fantastic experience. And I still do do things like that from time to time. Um, yes. Uh, and that's how I got involved. And that's how I remain involved. 
Well, I'm grateful that you got involved and I'm grateful to the Washington Independent Review of Books. I go to some, their conferences from time to time. Yeah, I, I actually presented at one of them on uh, my children's book called Mommy, Why Is Your Skin So Brown? And it was great fun. Do you do any of the conferences? With I do. But yeah. as when I'm at the conference, I'm, I'm a volunteer again. So I have run like some of the panels. In fact, I did the, the last one. And I was, it was a pretty interesting panel because it was about, it was about the L, LQT, LBQT, you know. LGBTQIA plus. LGBTQIA, you know what I mean? These are the things that make me feel like my age. Uh, me too. You know, I'm like, oh, what? what was that? And it was so funny because as, again, as, I, as you mentioned, I have two sons and I was sitting in the back of the room and I was listening to it and I was, um, I was just kind of guiding the panel. I was not asking questions or anything. I was mainly listening. And I had a question, but I decided, oh, I probably shouldn't ask that question. I came home and I asked my son later, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not gonna tell you what the question was. He's like, mom, they would think you were whack. So no, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's a good thing you didn't ask the question. So, oh yeah, my, yeah, my I, I, kids too, yep. Yeah. My I kids school me all the time. My yes. daughter says, mom, do you think you could stop using the paternalistic language that you use? <laughs> yeah. Like uh, uh, For a 59 year old, I consider myself pretty woke. So help me out yeah. here. I want to learn. I want to learn. What am I doing? Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, I listen all the time. And, and nowadays I have to listen to his music. Um, because, you know, you get in the car and he immediately does his, <laughs> his playlist from his phone. And so much of it, I really love. I'm amazed. And then he has a he has a wider taste than I ever would have expected because he'll play some songs from our day, you know, and go all the way forward. And I'm like, great. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm developing that way. So uh... I'm, like you, I'm definitely open to it. Um, and, you know, and, and I don't move along begrudgingly, but some things like, I'm like, what? <laughs> Why are we, you know, the labeling is a little, um, is a little, you know, like I have to catch up to it. <laughs> I have a lot of catching up to do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I appreciate that you are with me in wanting to learn, staying open-minded. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So also on your, your very beautiful website, you have something called the Brown Girl Collective Book Club. Can you tell our listeners about that book club? And if it's open to our listeners or anyone, if you could explain more about it. Well, actually, it was something that I found out about. They, you know, and, and, um, so that's the other thing. Because of my work with the Washington Independent Review of Book, I had a lot of relationships with um, publishers because they were always sending you um, their new books. And that was amazing. At one point, I was getting, you know, a new book every other day, sometimes three a day, all of that. And so I had a lot of um, contact with publicists because I'd have to get the books from them and I'd have to, or they write me about books. And that was great because for a time I'd just read what they wrote and say, okay, yeah, I'll do this book or send me this book or send me that book. And sometimes they wouldn't even ask, they'd just send you the book. And so when I was doing my own book, I reached out to a couple of them and said, you know, how do I do this? What, you know, because I wasn't on that side of the business. And I was sent this long list of people that and, and contacts for a book like mine and the Brown Girl Collective was one of those. And they have, I think they have a yearly um, conference 
or something in New York or what have you. And that's how I found out about them. I had no prior relationship with that, with them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I like the name of it. I'll investigate yep. it more. So I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll take a look. Mm -hmm. There are ex There is an excerpt from chapter one of your book on your website. So if any of you listening are on the fence at all about buying this beautiful book, you might want to read it. I'm just going to read one sentence. <laughs> and th that is the following. In his way, Thrace had anchored her, and now she was free to float as she pleased within the great big sea of his belongings. Like, beautiful. What a beautiful sentence. You, you. It's poetic, too. So you and your brother are both poets. <laughs> so seriously, people, you want a good read? Get this book, A Good Ending for Bad Memories. How did you come up with the names? Because the names are really colorful in the book as well. Clifton Thrace, for instance. Uh, Lloyd Earl, that evokes for me. I have a picture in my mind of who Lloyd Earl is. So how did you come up with these names? Well, you know, I had a, I, I don't even know, actually. Clifton was easy, and so was Lloyd. And one of the reasons that it was Lloyd Earl is because I wanted people to get, you know, when I, they used to call him Lord Earl or Lloyd Earl or, you know, the way it would run together. Yeah. And I liked that. And yes. so that, that stuck with me. In terms of the women naming them, that was, a, I, at first I wanted to do something where I would, each of them had a name based on the original name. You know, like since if I, if I was going to use Selma, then one would be Selma, then the next one would be Elizabeth or, you know, with using all those letters, but I didn't like it. So then the name sort of just, you know, <laughs> came. Uh, there's no, the only thing I can tell you about that that's really funny to me. So in my next book, that's basically from my standpoint, finished from beginning to end, but it's now with my, some readers of mine, mm -hmm. one of the early complaints, like, where'd you get these names? What are these names? <laughs> like, I don't know. Those are the names that came to me and I'm sticking with them. Because yes. She, she's yes. Like, yes. Names? I was like, <laughs> well, I love it. I love it that you allow your process, your writing process and creative process to be somewhat organic and that you sit with the characters and you get to know them like a true uh, talented fiction writer does, because I don't have that talent. I write nonfiction because I don't believe that I have the talent to to make believable characters and follow a really great plot line like you do. And I'm fascinated by it, by your process. And I love hearing about how you do it. And I've gone to other book talks of yours and listened to you on various podcasts. And it's extraordinary. You have you are a great creator. That's lovely because you, for me, that's that's what's most important about it. And and that's the lovely part. I mean, you know, the the writing business is one thing. But the most amazing part for me is when I'm when I'm sitting here and I'm actually creating. And when I say here, it's you know my my home and my desk and my computer. And and I remember going from a spiral notebook and a number two pencil. Yes, yes, yes. To, uh, you know <laughs> how are you? And you still can't type as fast as you can think. But it's a wonderful it's a wonderful space. And especially when it's working. And especially when you're you know, the words are coming the way you want them to. And, and the other thing, all of the characters in this book, the women are walkers, and so am I. Uh, and walking, they definitely, 
you know, when you're creating them, when, when you're trying to figure out things, uh, walking is a definitely, they become more fluid and maybe talk to you while you're moving. So do you ever take notes while you're walking or dictate something into your phone, anything like that? I definitely, you know, most of the time when I'm like knowing I'm writing a new story, I definitely keep notes. In mm. fact, I used to have, um, like I'd have a notebook for each story because mm. and it would be something that, oh, you knew this had to happen in this book mm. or you, you know, like you'd see something beautiful and you'd, you know, describe it in a certain way and you'd write that. Um, less now because, of course, I don't carry a notebook, and, but I do do it on my phone sometimes. And I don't, I'm still not one of those people that records, which would be the easiest thing while you're walking, just record it. Yes. I just sort of type it. I, I still sit there and use my fingers to type something that will help me remember my, um, what I'm trying to say. Sure. So do I, because I went to school at a time when I brought a typewriter to college. I need that writing process as part of my creative process. The and physical. You're right. And everybody does it in their own way. You know, the way that, that things come to you. For me, the, I'm more fascinated with people that have music in their heads. I'm like, wow, in the world does that. Yes, yes, I mean, that's yes. incredible to me. I, I'm with you on that. So when can we, when can we enjoy your next book? Do you, do you have a publication date or? In, in fact, I, I just, I have just, I'm telling you in the last week, given it to readers that whose, 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 whose opinions I really would like to hear. And after sure. that, if it's where I am, and it, it's so funny because, so my main reader, <laughs> Anna, I gave it to her and she hated the book or hated parts of it. Oh, she was like, oh, and so finally, um, based on some of what she said, knowing what I wanted, knowing what she said in places, I rewrote quite a lot of it. And this morning she called me and said, oh, my God, um, now she loved that, you know, <laughs> part of what she read. And she could not believe she's like, what in the world? Like, why? How did I manage to um, do that? How did I, how come I didn't do that in the first place? Wow. And I think sometimes it's just below the surface. You just mm -hmm. don't know you haven't put it where it makes sense for the reader. Right. Because it wow. always makes sense in your mind. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that it sounds like it's working for you because a good ending for bad memories came out just right. So Vales, I ask all of the women that I have on the podcast, the following question. What do you do to become your best version? You know, it's an interesting question. And thank you, Maria, making me think about it. One thing that I think that helps me now is that there are things that you simply have to make a decision about. And I know this is going to sound probably, you know, silly, but sometimes I get up in the morning and I start to feel a little, uh, and, then, and then I make a decision. And that decision is, this is a good day. I'm thankful for having this day. And I'm going to make, um, and, and I'm going to take this time and do the best things that I can with it. And it's a simple decision. And, and so many things that we think we have to rely on something else, like even something like being happy. I think that you make that decision. I'm going to smile at this. I am happy. I'm going to look at something that, is beautiful outside or inside, and I'm gonna have that inform me. And so that's part of it. And then I think that the other thing that we all have to do now because of the world we live in is be careful about what we take in, what mm. we ingest. And I don't mean our stomachs, I mean our minds. 
you know, you're so bombarded with things and you're just like, ah, you know, and they hit you this way and take you that way. I think you have to make a decision to, to um, keep everything or so many things at a distance and to not take them in. Oh, that is really important. Both of those things that you said are good reminders for me and all of us that we do have uh, control over what we allow into our spaces. So thank you for that. I appreciate Maria, thank that. you for putting it that way. Because <laughs> that, that, that sort of is exactly what I was trying to say. So thank you for saying it better. And thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. It's been great spending some time with you. Thank you. And join us again next week for another fascinating, inspiring woman on this podcast. And go to the show notes to look at her link tree of various uh, social media links and her blog and her website, veilsshepherdbooks.com. That's V-A-I-L-E-S-S-H-E-P-P-E-R-D books.com. And you will not be disappointed. This is a wonderful work. And I look forward to reading your next four books. Thank you.